that. We're looking at the book of Job. Job chapter 4 is the beginning of our text this morning, and we're seeing how we can know God through times of suffering. Job chapter 4, actually our text is Job chapter 4 through chapter 31. I'm going to begin reading in chapter 4 and verse 1, and I'm going to read all the way through chapter 31 and verse 40. Y'all buckle in. No, I'm not going to do that this morning. We would be here for a while yet. I encourage you, though, challenging though it is, if you believe the verse of Scripture, 2 Timothy 3.16, all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable. Do you believe that all Scripture is profitable? I don't know about the rest of you. What about the rest of you? Do we believe that all Scripture is profitable? Say amen. That was slightly better. Still not sure about some of you on that, but all Scripture is profitable. So even the challenging parts. So shoulder your way through the book of Job and understand as you're reading it. Understand that there are some things that are being said that are partially true and some things that are partly true and some things that are wholly true, but in it, it is in these chapters, from chapter 4 through chapter 31, it is the voice from this side of heaven. It is the voice of man that is looking at a situation, and these men are assessing Job's situation. And I would remind you that the only voice that matters is the voice that speaks from the other side, and that is the word and the voice of God. And so I would challenge you in whatever situation you are in in your life this morning, be careful about listening to the voices around you, well-intended and well-meaning though they may be. Focus your heart and mind on what God is saying and what He reveals about Himself. In chapter 4, I'm going to read just a few verses just to sort of give you a taste of what Job is going to experience in this next stage of his temptation and his trial. He has been tried in what has been taken away from him. He has been tried by what has been left to him, his wife, encouraging him to end it all and curse God. He has been tried in his own heart and mind, and now Satan sends three friends to speak to him. And this may be one of the most challenging trials that Job will face. Look in verse 1. Then Eliphaz the Temanite... Let me just remind you that in the end of chapter 2, three friends, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, come to Job, and they sit down to mourn with him and to comfort him. And they sat down for seven days and seven nights and did not say a word because they saw that his grief was very great. After Job speaks what we saw in chapter 3, Eliphaz the Temanite answered and said, If we essay to commune with thee, wilt thou be grieved? But who can withhold himself from speaking? In other words, I've got something to say, and I just can't stop. This has got to be said. Have you ever heard somebody that felt like they just, this is, I've just got something to say. This must be said. This is how, this is how Eliphaz feels about this. Behold, you have instructed many, Job. You've strengthened the weak hands. Your words have upholded him that was falling, and you have strengthened the feeble knees. Knees. Good job, Job. This is what we're commanded to do as believers in the book of Hebrews. Lift up those who are weak. Lift up those who are feeble. And Job, you've done this. Good job. But, (laughs) 
Verse 5, now it has come upon thee, and thou faintest. It touches thee, and thou art troubled. Is not this thy fear, thy confidence, thy hope, and the uprightness of thy ways? Job, you were confident. You felt good. You thought you were righteous. But look what he says in verse 7. Remember, I pray thee, whoever perished being innocent. Well, we can all think of at least one innocent, totally innocent person who perished. Or were the righteous cut off? Can we say this morning that we know that there are those who are righteous and good. We know there's none good, no, not one, not talking about that, but we know that there are good people that suffer in this life. Has that been our experience? Have we seen that? How many of you, since you have been saved, have experienced some suffering or some trials? Okay, the rest of you are lying, and you're getting ready to get some coming to you. We all have seen that. So Eliphaz comes, and his attitude is, Job, there must be something sinful in your life. I want you to picture with me this morning as we think of Job, uh, just use your sanctified imagination. Job is sitting in a pile of ashes because he is covered with boils. He is covered with sores. Maggots are crawling over his body. He is in pain. He is in constant, chronic suffering and agony of his body, not just his mind, not just his soul, his body is hurting. And he looks up through the, through the darkness, through the mist around him that's in his mind, and he sees these three figures coming toward him. He sees his three friends coming to visit him, to mourn with him, the Bible says, and to comfort him. Boy, what a blessing it is for to have those who are encouragers in your life to have those who show up, and when you see them on your doorstep, you know you're going to feel better. You know you're going to be encouraged. I'm thankful for friends in my life who have done that for me through the years. But these three friends are not exactly, with friends like these, who needs enemies? I believe that phrase was probably based on the three friends of Job. I want to just briefly introduce you to them this morning so you get a sense of what Job is going to face over these next 20-something chapters. The first one that we meet, and he's probably the eldest because he's the first one to speak, his name is Eliphaz. <clears throat> his name, as is befitting to his message, is, means God, God dispenses judgment. Now, I'm not sure who names their baby that, just to be quite honest. You know, I've often, I think quite a bit about babies' names and what they mean and Boy, back then when they really meant something, God dispenses judgment. I, I sort of have some friends and acquaintances that probably would name their baby that. They would, boy, I'm, I'm so glad. I can't wait till God pours out judgment. And that's sort of his attitude. In fact, I, I, sort of, I sort of hear as I read this and as I read through Job, I sort of I, I hear his voice in a southern accent. Here's a man that relies strongly on his experience. This is what I have experienced. This is what I have seen. This is what I have heard. But he has a way of saying harsh truths in the most polite way. In fact, I sort of hear his message of this to Job. Job, you're suffering because you're a dirty, rotten sinner, bless your heart. Nobody like us Southerners can stick a knife in with a smile on our face. And we can say the harshest things, but as long as you throw in a nice phrase, oh, I love, I love them, but they're just so dumb. 
as long as you say something nice. And, and Eliphaz does that. He can say these things, and he says this to Job. Job, you've encouraged so many people. Good for you, Job. But now you have failed in this. And don't we know that the, the innocent never suffer? The righteous never have problems. What is his insinuation? His insinuation is, Job, if you were innocent, if you were righteous, this wouldn't be happening to you. I suspect most of us here, if we are honest, have either encountered someone who acts that way toward us, or we have, in the back of our mind, had that same concept. Boy, something, something bad happens to someone. Well, they clearly, there must be something wrong in their life. Oh, we're quick to say, oh, we know that's not always the case, but I believe it's the case for you. See, for us, we're always, oh, it's, it's not. It's, it's, bad things happen to good people. But when it happens to somebody else, well, I wonder what they did. I wonder what their sin has been. The second friend that comes is named Bildad. His name means son of contention. Boy, what a great, great friend to have. Son of contention. He likes to argue. He relies strongly on tradition and history. This is what has happened. This is the way things have always been. And so, therefore, this is, what we, this is how we know it to be, so, <coughs> to be so. A lot of folks do that. And Bildad's message is to Job, Job, you're sinning, but if you would repent, God would remove your suffering. In other words, not only were you sinning to cause this, you are continuing to sin because it's continuing to take place. Now, we know that's not the case. I mean, exactly what kind of sins are, is Job committing as he sits there in that pile of ashes? We know that the Bible says he did not in all of this. Job did not sin with his lips. So Job is sitting there and he's hearing Bildad saying, well, if you'd, just, if you'd get right with God, this would all go away. There are times when God does chastise his children. But we need to be careful that we don't assess every situation as that. And then there's the third friend that comes through the, through the mist and through the darkness into Job's mind and Job's life. And his name is Zophar. His name simply means rough. And he's rough. In fact, I sort of picture him as sort of like a, a pit bull. He's a blunt dogmatic moralist. He says what he thinks. He doesn't have any of Eliphaz's refinement and politeness. He just says it. I sort of picture him, some of y'all will know who this is and some of y'all won't. Years ago, James Cagney was the, um, an actor and if you ever saw him get mad, the veins would pop out on his neck and he'd get real mad and, just, and almost have a stroke. I see that in, I see that in old Ruff here. Ruff. That was how he Almost like a dog. Ruff, ruff. He was, boy, he was tough. He was a bulldog coming after Job. I think if there was one flaw in Job's life, he was really not good in picking his friends. Job's, or Zophar's attitude was, you're sinning, and if you don't repent, it's only going to get worse. Can you imagine going to someone who's experienced what Job's been through and saying, Job, this is your fault, and it's only going to get worse unless you acknowledge what you did. He's rude, and he actually, you almost, 
you can almost picture the smoke coming out of his ears. He gets more and more frustrated with Job. And as he goes through the three cycles of this, of each one, of Eliphaz speaking, and then Job, and then Bildad, and then Job answers, and Zophar, and Job, and it goes through another cycle of it, and a third cycle. When it gets to Zophar's third term, he just doesn't even say anything. I almost picture him laying on the ground having a stroke with smoke coming. I mean, he's just, he's so angry with Job, he can't even speak anymore. And he's angry with him, and that's the kind of friends that have gathered around. Each one of these friends as they grow in their intensity, they lessen in their civility. Even Eliphaz with his politeness, the politeness gets stripped away. The less Job listens and the more Job answers, the angrier they get. Let me just say, I think that's an important thought and principle for our time. As Job's friends' certainty increased, the level of their civility decreased. And I say to us as Christians, let's be very careful that our certainty never exceeds our civility. I'm going to say that again because I see a lot of folks that have problems not to see you. I see a lot of folks, other folks than you that are here. I know none of you have a problem with this, but maybe you can share it with someone who does. But we need to be careful that our certainty doesn't exceed our civility. We get so certain. Now, I am certain of the truth of God's Word, but some of us are certain about things that we're not really sure about. And the more we argue about them, the more certain we get. And Job's friends progress. And here's the, here's the progression of, their, of the, the, their underlying thought. The righteous are rewarded because they are righteous, and the sinful suffer because they are sinful. Now that at first may sound like a good principle, and that's the problem. It fits well into our thought of you get what you deserve, but I am glad, I am thankful that I do not get what I deserve. I am glad that God does not give me what I deserve. The wages of sin, the wages, the earning, that what you have deserved and what you have earned and what I have earned by my sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. The three progressed through this. Job, therefore, was suffering because Job was sinful. Job's response will be, I am not sinful, therefore this suffering is unjust. I want you to see in this passage and through this, not through this, we're not going to read through every chapter, but through these three cycles. Can you imagine sitting there? And Job has to answer each one of these. One friend attacks him, and he has to give an answer. And then Bildad has the talk, and Job answers. And then Ruff stands up, and Job has to answer. And they go through it again. And then they go through it again. We don't know exactly how long all this takes, but I'm sure that Job's soul was weary by the time he got to the end of it. Three applications that I want you to see from this this morning. First of all, be careful to avoid the temptation of trying to fit God within your box. Avoid the temptation of trying to fit God within your box. In other words, two simple words to express this, expect grace. Expect God to act in grace. God, we say, people will often think, 
God must do this. God must act so. He will do this. God is under no obligation to act as you or I demand. God is under no obligation to act as you or I demand. He will always act according to His nature and His essence as expressed in Scripture, but He will not always act according to your or mine expectation. And we think, oh, this is what God must do. This is the way He must act. They saw and they said, boy, this is clearly, this is what God is doing, and this is why He is doing it. And they could not have been more wrong. Job's friends were wrong, and Job was wrong. The only voice that matters is the voice from the other side of heaven, and that is the voice of God. So be careful about trying to fit God into your box. He'll act according to His nature, His essence, and that is grace. That is the grace of God. God does not act as we would act. Aren't you glad that you're not God? I don't know about you, but I'm glad you're not God. I'm glad I'm not God. Because we have a sense of justice, we have a sense of entitlement, we have a sense of this is what is fair. And God sees things in a completely different light. We see things in the limited, the limited capsule of time, but God sees things through the, through the scope of eternity. And He's the one. Good, it's raining. Y'all don't want to go outside, I'm going to just preach for a while. Y'all just hang on. Some of y'all are like, oh... In the passing cloud, he brightly shines. <laughs> but we try to fit God into the way we think he ought to act. Steve Saint, who was a, the son of uh, the missionary Nate Saint, involved in mission work, was in an accident and, and was in, uh, and still to this day infirm and not able to move. He has in a, in a wheelchair. Trusting God, he said, to take away pain is admirable, but trusting God's will and his love when he doesn't take away pain. That's our greatest opportunity to demonstrate faith. These three friends thought they had God figured out. They based their argument on tradition, on personal experience, on reasoning, and they missed that God is God and He will do as He chooses. In fact, in the end of chapter 4, Eliphaz has this weird dream that's apparently scared the daylights out of him. And everything that he hears in this dream, you can find other places in Scripture that counter these things. But he's certain that it's true because he had the experience. Let me tell you that experiences in our Christian life are wonderful. But the minute our experiences begin to be contrary to the Word of God is the minute that our experiences are wrong. The Word of God is the final authority in all matters of faith and practice and in all experiences of our lives. If God heals or doesn't heal, if God restores or does not, if God answers my prayer like I want Him to or answers with a no, He is still God. See, what happens is we tend to fashion a, a mental idol. Those of us who would never have a material idol sitting in our home that we bow down and worship, we construct in our minds, this is who I think God is. This is what I want God to be. And we'll take some things that are true, but we take only the things that are comfortable for us, and we fashion this idol, and that's who we worship. And we tend to ignore the things about God that make us uncomfortable. 
Our God ought to, from time to time, make us uncomfortable. Why? Because He is God and we are not. And so we fashion this idea and so we worship that idea. And there are many Christians in our churches today that are nothing less than idol worshipers because they are worshiping the image of God that they have created. And the problem with that is, is that the idea I form of God tends to be the things that I like and the things I'm comfortable with. And my image says more about me than it does actually about who God is. So who am I actually worshiping? I'm worshiping myself. And that's exactly what these friends are doing. God is God. This is really the primary lesson taught by and to Job in this book. God is God. He will do as He pleases, when He pleases, and with whom He pleases. And He will not consult us about it. And He will do so for His own glory and for our good. I'm glad that what is for His glory is for our good. Because sometimes when I look at the things in my life, it's hard to see the good. Some of you are in situations right now, and you're really struggling to see the good. But that's where faith comes in to believe that God is at work, and that He is bringing good. Because God is sovereign in His actions, and because He's doing what He wants to do, we just simply do not know why some things happen. I would love if every person that came to me with a problem, with a situation, with someone in their family, said, Pastor, why is this happening? I wish I could give an answer to every person. But I'm going to be honest, the longer I serve God, the longer I live, the longer I follow Christ, the more times I have to just say, I don't know why this is happening. And we may never know till we get to heaven why this is happening. But we trust, we have faith regardless because we don't know, here's a second application from Job's friends. Speak the truth in love. Speak the truth in love. There are many times you just don't know what's going on in a person's life. You just don't know. Don't do damage with the truth. Being right, oh, I want to say this so clearly. I hope it's clear. Being right gives me no right to be rude. Is that clear enough? Being right gives me no right to be rude. Heard the story about a man that went to his doctor. The doctor put him through the physical, weighed him on the scale, and he said, well, clearly your problem is you're fat. The man said, well, that's just hurtful. I want a second opinion. He said, okay, you're ugly too. <laughs> just because you're right doesn't mean you have to say it. What is, someone has defined tact Telling the truth kindly, considerate of how your words affect others. Think before you speak, knowing what is better left unsaid. Jesus came full of grace and truth. This story hit me in the 8 o'clock service, and I shared it with them. I probably shouldn't share it because it's streaming this morning, but that's okay. Y'all, is that okay with y'all? Man was at home, his wife was on a trip. For some extended time, she called back home. She said, how are things going? He said, well, everything seems to be pretty good around here. She said, well, how's the cat? He said, well, the cat died. 
she said, oh, that's terrible. She just burst out in tears. She loved that cat, and she was just broken about this, and he's just sitting completely clueless on the phone. She said, I can't believe you did that. The way you did that just really was not... She said, what you should do, you should have broken it to me gently. We're going to talk over several days. You could have said in the first phone call, honey, the, cat was, the cat's up on the roof. And then the second time we talked, you could have said, honey, the cat fell off the roof and he's hurt. And then the third time, you could have told me then the cat died. And that would have sort of broken it to me gently and I could have been prepared for it. And instead of this unexpected, the cat's dead. He said, oh, well, okay, I, that's fine. I think I can figure that out. So they got her calmed down, and she said, so how's my mother? He said, she's up on the roof. <laughs> I'm sorry, that's terrible, isn't it? John chapter 1 says, Jesus Christ came full of grace and truth, speaking the truth in love. Be careful what you say to a person who is going through hard times. Be careful what you say to a person who is suffering. Speak the truth. Speak the word. Speak the scriptures. Let the scriptures be your guide but speak it in the spirit of love. This is why it is essential for us to be spirit-filled believers. This is why it's important for the Holy Spirit to guide our tongue, because often we, in good intentions, doing our best, can still do great damage. But when the Holy Spirit gets a hold of our tongue, then, the boy, the, the honey drops, as he says in, in the book of uh, Proverbs, that good words well spoken. A word fitly spoken is like, apples of gold and pictures of silver, the blessedness of words spoken in truth. Oh, that Job could have had someone who came alongside of him and spoke truth to him, but did it in a loving way. Because we don't always know what is going on, and what we perceive to be judgment may be God at work in sanctifying that individual. Be careful how you speak and what you judge, which brings us to the third application. We should make no judgment calls about others or about our own righteousness based on what we see on the outside. We should be careful not to make judgment calls about our righteousness or others' righteousness. Why? Because here's the principle. Righteousness is not determined by what's on the outside. It is an internal work of God. And this is a truth that is, a, listen, this is, this is the important truth of this context of this passage, that our righteousness is not what we do on the outside. You see, Job thought that was the case. I do right, and I'm righteous, and I don't understand why this is happening to me. Job's friends, if you were righteous, Job, if you, they looked on the outside and they said, well, you look righteous, but if you were truly righteous, what's happening to you and what's happening outside of you should not be happening, therefore there must be some sin somewhere. This truth can be summed up in two simple words, experience grace. You see, these friends were fearful because by their standard, by their standard, if this could happen to Job, what would happen to them? Or if they are wrong, they have no guarantee of their own righteousness. Their estimation of their righteousness was because nothing bad has happened to me. 
what's happened to Job has not happened to me, therefore, I must be doing pretty good. Their fear caused them to question. Job is certain of his righteousness, and he questions because he is suffering. Be very careful of evaluating your experience or anyone else's experience based on outward righteousness because you could be very well wrong. You don't know what is taking place. Only God truly knows. Now, there are times when we know, look, I'm not saying we don't know when sin is sin. The Bible is clear on that. God said, Jesus said, judge with a righteous judgment. But when you see something taking place in a person's life, our righteousness is based on two things. It's based on imputed righteousness. That is the righteousness of Christ that has been credited to my account. I am in Christ, and I can come into the presence of God because of that. And imparted righteousness, it is God's work of righteousness, it is Christ in me that God is working and transforming into me into His image. But God's love for me is not based on what happens to me on the outside. It is about what's taking place in me. So rest in the righteousness of Christ. Don't think what is happening in your life is because of, well, I'm doing pretty good, so God is blessing me. I'm doing all these things right, so God is blessing. Or something bad is happening to me, and something bad is happening to my family. Therefore, what's wrong with me? Why, do, why is this happening to me? Rest solely in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. That is why the truth of imputed righteousness is so important. Not just to know that my eternal standing before God and my entrance into heaven is based on His righteousness. And not just because when I go to Him in prayer, I go in the righteousness of Christ. But for me to understand that whatever comes in my life, whatever happens in my life, whatever trials I go through, whatever grief I experience, whatever sorrow I experience, I am standing alone in Jesus Christ. He is the rock on which we stand. And that righteousness that we rest in. What are you basing your standing on? Your standing before God, what do you base it on? Outward righteousness may not be a sign of inward rightness. Just because you do a lot of good things on the outside doesn't mean the, right, the inside is right. Only the righteousness of Christ. I stand before God in the righteousness of Christ and there is nothing, there is no situation, there is no suffering, there is no sorrow, there is no, not even Satan himself can separate me from that. You and I need to know that. You need to know it right now if you are in a trial, if you are in suffering. You need to know that you are settled and anchored in the righteousness of Christ, that you don't earn your standing before God, and you don't unearn your standing before God. And if you are preparing to one day go through that and go through suffering and go through separation and trial and hardship, you need to be prepared now to know that your anchor is rooted in Christ and in Christ alone. He is our hope in life and in death. And when we come to death, we understand that we stand in His righteousness. Why, why does this truth matter? Well, it matters because... We must be preparing ourselves and preparing one another for that time when we will go through the darkness and we will need to hold to God's unchanging hand. 
He's the one that holds me, but I hold tightly to his hand. There was a pastor in Europe during World War II. His city was being constantly bombed. Every Sunday he would preach to hundreds, even thousands at times as they gathered in the cathedral and he would preach. And he was discouraged and he was challenged, but he faithfully preached the gospel. He faithfully preached finding our righteousness in Christ. One day as he was walking through the streets and he was looking at the buildings that had been bombed, he was seeing the dead, he was seeing the injured. He passed by this building that had been completely demolished and there was one little entrance down it where there was a, a big pit where the bomb had landed. And there was a lady standing there and she was weeping and she came to him and she said, aren't you pastor? And she named his name. She said, I wasn't sure since you weren't in your pastoral clothes, but I wanted to know if it was you. And she said, I want you to know that my husband, my husband died right here. He was right down in that hole. In fact, we were not able to even find his body. All we could find was just, just his hat. And that's how we know that he was there. But she said, we were there at church the last time you preached. And you preached on God's grace. And you preached on the righteousness of Christ. And you prepared us. And she said, here, standing today by this pit, I want to thank you for preparing my husband for eternity. And I want you to know this morning that we need to be standing in the righteousness of Jesus Christ to be prepared for eternity. If you are depending on your good works, if you're depending on being a decent person, if you're depending on being a member of a church, or even being a member of Central Baptist Church, if you're depending on anything else, you are not prepared. You must stand only in the righteousness of Jesus Christ, placing your faith and trust in Him, turning from your sins and placing your faith in Christ for your eternal salvation, and only then will you be prepared for eternity. And I say to those who have been prepared for eternity, to be prepared for whatever will come in your life, to be prepared for whatever will happen, you need to be standing firm in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. That whatever happens, that whatever takes place, your foundation is secure and firm. And I want you to be prepared for whatever will happen, for whatever you face, for whatever challenge comes your way. Why? Because it is in Christ and Christ alone that we stand and our foundation is secure. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly cling to Jesus' name. On Christ, the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. I'm glad this morning that Job's friends got it wrong, and Job got it wrong, but God will always get it right and we stand in His righteousness. Father, I pray this morning that You will speak to us. Give us from Your Word what application we need to have in our lives. I pray that You'll speak to our hearts.